0: Go from there. Our Father, we are deeply grateful for your love for us. We are deeply grateful that um, in the fullness of time, Jesus came to uh, be born, uh, to live a perfect life, to uh, die in our place, to uh, be raised, and to ascend into heaven, to be our king, to be our prophet and priest forever. And so, Lord, uh, we are thankful for your uh, greatness. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the good news that we have been redeemed. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, we will find joy in your presence. Lord, you have made known to us uh, the way of life and in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore, and so we ask that we will find joy in the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are um, uh, about to begin a a new series, um, and we are going to be uh, studying the the book of Philippians, and the book of Philippians is uh, a great um, a great book for this time because it talks about joy in the midst of hardship. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, the dating website eHarmony. Maybe you have friends that have used it. Maybe even friends that have been rejected. Um, uh, I, I love the the commercials for competing websites. Have you? Been rejected by eHarmony. Um, try us, we're less selective, as if that's supposed to be like something that instills confidence, right? Like, don't be picky, we weren't. Um, um I, a while back I was reading a survey by Dr. Neil Clark warren and he's the founder of eHarmony, and he asked 108 people the same question. And I'll ask you this morning: if you could choose between these three, what would you choose? Um Let's see, Tanya sent sending me a note. Can you present like a slideshow? I'm not sure that I can. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, I will, let's see. Tanya, that's about best I can do, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the joys of uh, the joys of of uh, technology um if you could choose between these three uh which would you choose would you rather be uh, immediately happy would you rather be enduringly content or incredibly rich um and uh, and so he, he asked this question. So I'll kind of pose it to you. If, you. if you could choose between the three, which would you choose? Would you choose to be immediately happy? Would you choose to be enduringly content? Or would you choose to be incredibly rich? Uh, as he asked this question, 19 people responded, they would like to be immediately happy. And only three people responded that they would like to be incredibly rich. Now, I imagine those three people thought that money could buy happiness but eighty six out of that one hundred and eight people said that they would rather be enduringly content that and, and, and really, the result of this simple survey um, is something that that shows to us our deepest longing. It, it shows us that in spite of Um, our behaviors, what we really long for is lasting satisfaction, far more than immediate gratification. Um, But if you ask most people, how do you get lasting satisfaction? They wouldn't know, right? They they don't know. And so they just settle. And they settle for some kind of short-term happiness that comes from pleasing others or achieving things or acquiring things or partying or shopping or entertaining themselves all because they don't know how to find lasting joy. And, and I think we in the church are like that as well. We It's not talking just about faithless people outside the church, but people who are Christians. We find ourselves searching for lasting joy, and and we look for it in lots of different things. While we still lived in Los Angeles, um, I got together with a family member, and um, she began to talk about uh, her story a little bit and how she left the faith. She's no longer considering herself a Christian, and um, and so I probed and I began to dig down and I I just said, Hey, what what is it um, that that led you down that path? And she said, You know, my parents were in ministry. Um, I heard all about joy. I just never saw joy. And if once instead of hearing the joy of the Lord is my strength, I could have seen the joy of the Lord being someone's strength, maybe I wouldn't have left the faith. I think, as as she shared her story, I, I realized that that we often are are um, part of the problem. We settle for less, and it's easy to slip into. And we experience frustration, or perpetual boredom, or emptiness. Um, and and so we. Channel surf, or we get on social media apps, or um, we we do any number of behaviors to try to kind of medicate our soul and at least distract us from the pain that we have. So our work begins to seem futile, especially now that we're working from home. Um, We're lonely, even if we're around a bunch of people. And now that we're not around a bunch of people, we're even lonelier. Um, And and for for some of us, it feels like life just isn't working. Like, like you feel like life isn't working and your faith isn't working because you know that you should have this enduring joy, but you don't because it's destroyed by circumstances. As, as God through the apostle Paul has given us the book of of Philippians, it is all about looking for and finding joy. That is joy and, and enduring contentment, even when it seems like life isn't working. It's it, the idea behind in this first passage. I'll just I'll just share it with you. But is the, that the journey towards joy begins with confidence that God is working even when it seems like life isn't working. The, the book of Philippians is. Um, uh, written by Paul, about 30 years after uh, Jesus, and and um, this letter is uh, written to the the people of Philippi, uh, which is Philippi is in southern Europe. It's it's uh, northern Greece. It's a city that was uh, built about 400 years before Jesus, and is named after King Philip of Macedonia. And King Philip of Macedonia is the father of Alexander the Great. And so Alexander the Great conquered the city, um, and it's it's. Um, it's literally the first European city that a church is planted in. And so um here's Paul. He's a man that is imprisoned. And he is writing to a church that he planted. And he is writing to people that he loves. And he knows that he's about to die. And because he knows that he's about to die, he wants to tell them how much he loves them. And you go, okay, that's perfectly normal. But what's super unusual is this man who's in chains. He's he's under house arrest. Um he, he's writing to tell them. How free he is, and he 's exhorting them to find joy i mean that 's an uncommon thing joy this this book is is so full of the theme of joy joy is is um, uh, specifically spoken about sixteen times in just one hundred and four verses it's about every seventh verse comes back to addressing joy and so the themes of joy he he talks about joy in a whole host of ways the progress of the gospel is a basis for joy in suffering. Humility in relationships will build the joy of unity. Selflessness is brings the, the joy of contentment. Submission and obedience leads to the joy of maturity. Faith in Christ will bring ultimate joy of right standing with God. And so he's talking about joy, but here's what he's not talking about. He's not talking about happiness. Happiness, the, the word happy comes from a Latin word that, that basically is tied to the word happening, right? Um, The feeling of euphoria that comes through good circumstances. Happiness is an external thing. And man, I hope that all of you have tons and tons of happiness. I hope that, that your um, uh, businesses succeed, your car always starts, your American Idol contestant wins, I, whatever makes you happy. I hope it happens for you. But, but when we talk about that happiness, happiness is a short lived thing, right? And, and Paul is not talking about just a short term happiness. He is talking about joy that is far richer. And, and he's talking about the fact that we are created for joy. Lewis Meads, um is a professor over in Pasadena at, at Fuller Seminary, and he wrote this, you and I were created for joy. And if we miss it, then we miss our reason for existence. If our joy is honest, however, it must be somehow congruous with human tragedy. It is the test of joy's integrity that it is compatible with pain. Only the heart that hurts has the right to joy. For, for most of us, the pursuit of joy or the pursuit of happiness is an attempt to get rid of the pain. It's an attempt to get rid of the hurt. And, and so we have to understand that joy is the deep, settled confidence that God is in control of every area of our life. So to say it in another way, it's it's the confidence that God is working, even when it seems like life isn't working. I've seen this firsthand. A few years back, we were living in Texas got a phone call from a couple who called to tell me that they had miscarried. And so I went over to, to be with them, to sit with them, just for a few minutes to pray with them. And, and as I prayed with them, the thing that struck me, the thing that, that has stuck with me still years later, is, is I said, hey, can we pray? And this man immediately began to pray. And through his tears, he said, Lord, I want to thank you so much for this little girl that we never got to meet face-to-face. I want to thank you that um, Michaela Joy, is what they named her, that she has been used by God to change our family's life. And I want to thank you knowing that you are good and that in your good purposes, you allowed this to happen and we will trust you. It was about that same time that John Piper talked about a tragedy in his church, that um, uh, there had been uh, a tragic car accident. And so in one of his messages as he was preaching, he says, I'll tell you what makes Jesus beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands dead on the street. And you say through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. God is enough. He is good, and he will take care of us, and he will satisfy us, and he will get us through this. He is our treasure. Whom have I had in heaven but you, and on earth there is nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart and my little girl may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, and that is what makes God glorious. God, not as a giver of cars, not as a giver of safety or health, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him in the midst of loss, and not in prosperity. I remember um, uh, when we were displaced, uh, we were living in Mission Viejo and, and lots of things went wrong with our house. And um, the lawyer who was trying to sort things out uh, had messed things up so badly, it looked like things were gonna be a total loss and we would never reclaim anything. Tanya and the boys were living in Michigan. I was living here in California. We had been apart for like a year. And a Christian friend asked me, um, uh, like, how, how do you hold on to God in all of this? And, and I remember saying, like, hey, we're just holding on to what Job said. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, I will trust him. And, and his response was, man, you're so Zen. And it, it's not that we're Zen. It's that we have confidence that God is working, even when it seems like life is not working. For some of you, life is not working right now. Um, and God wants to lead you to joy. In fact, the Bible, if you can believe this, will lead us to believe that Christ died so that you could experience joy. And here's how I get there. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Psalm 16 says, you have no, made known to me the path of life. In God's presence is fullness of joy. It is right hand pleasures forevermore. And so Christ died once for all to bring us to God, and in God's presence is fullness of joy. And so Christ died that we might know joy in God's presence. And so if you're looking for God, then you're looking for joy, and you don't even know it. A couple years ago, oh man, I I guess it's been more than that. Um, We were living in Texas. I was teaching scuba, um, and um, uh, one of uh, my students, her name is Susan, said, uh, Hey, um, this weekend, you know, like, I'm just doing a private lesson. Um, I live close to the lake that we're going to go diving in. Uh, we have a lake house down there. Why don't you come? And my spouse and I will will uh, have you stay overnight. And then we can get started early. And, and you know, the sun will still be out and won't be so cold. And I said, great. So I show up at their lake house. And I I didn't know anything about uh, this lady uh, or her spouse. And I showed up and, and uh, you know, it's two 60-year-old lesbian women living on a lake house. And uh, and I thought, well, this will be interesting if they begin to ask me any probing questions. And sure enough, like we sit down for dinner and uh, we're talking and they say, um, uh, so Tim, when you're not doing scuba, what is it you do for a living? And I said, oh, well, I'm a, uh, you know, I, work for, I work for a church and there was kind of this like, jolt a little bit like, oh no, we got somebody that works in the church. They go, what do you do for your church? And I said, I teach, teach Christian hedonism and, and they said, "Wait, you do what?" And I said, "I teach Christian hedonism," and they said, "What is Christian hedonism? We've never heard of this." And I said, "Well, really, that's amazing. You guys, I feel like you're halfway there." And and they said, "What are you talking about?" And I said, "Well, like uh, here we are in this beautiful lake house. Every window you look out, you see the lake. You have all these like comfortable chairs. Um, both of you uh, apparently are like gourmet cooks. You have the largest." Uh, Uh, cellar full of fine wine I've ever seen. I mean, like, um, so, so clearly you appreciate um, the joys and the pleasures of the body. um, And Christian hedonism just takes things the next step and says, if you stop with the pleasures of the body, then you just haven't gone far enough. If you, you have to look for the pleasures of the soul. And when you look for the pleasures of the soul, you'll find enduring joy and contentment. And they said, what, well what's that about and so i took them to to psalm 16 like in god's presence is fullness of joy and first peter 3 that that jesus died to lead us to god and and they really struggled with the notion of of jesus dying and and they what they called it was um uh, cosmic child abuse that God would would kill His Son, um, and and I I, I said no, I, I, like Jesus willingly laid down His life. He he said he he lays it down and he picks it up, um, and so uh, we see that in the cross and the resurrection. and And they were struggling with that, but they understood that hey, in all of these fine things I have art and and this beautiful home and all these things, I'm not finding enduring joy. And so I just said, you know, here's what I tell people I, I tell people pursue joy. Don't settle, just keep pursuing joy. And eventually, if you pursue joy, you'll find God. Well, a couple years later, um, uh, Susan wrote to me and she said, uh, Anne and I split um, and I've decided to do what you said. Uh, I'm going to chase joy. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And she said, I've enrolled in seminary. And she was um, enrolled at Bright Divinity School, which is a um, universalist Unitarian seminary. And and she said, what do you think? And I said, I think that you're trying to find God instead of searching for joy. And you're trying to find the God that you want to find and a universalist universalist like unitarian god of he's everything and he's nothing i don't think you're going to find satisfying but here's what they're going to do they're going to teach you all the world religions so look at all the world religions and just go do any of these lead me to joy and they're going to tell you that you should go serve people and they're going to tell you you should be an activist and you should go out and and in all of that does even though self-sacrifice brings a, a measure of of Um, uh, satisfaction, you have to ask yourself, does it, does it lead to, to enduring joy? And so again, I took her to, to first Peter, like Christ died once for all that, that um, uh, we might be brought to God. And she said, you know, I got to tell you, um, uh, I don't, I haven't bought into your view of Christianity. She's like, but of all the people who have ever presented Christianity to me, I I feel like yours is pointing me in the right direction, so I'm just going to keep chasing joy. And so I've, I've kind of lost track of Susan. I don't really know what's happened with her. But but I, I think to some degree, when we think about joy, joy can be the thing that is the greatest um, apologetic for the gospel, and it can also be the greatest deterrent. When people look and they see Christians with no joy, then it's really hard to say, I want that. And And when they see Christians who... In spite of the hardest things, experience joy. They go, man, what is that's different? That's something that's incredibly different. So, so the the, the book of Philippians is about enduring joy. And I got to give you a, a, a warning kind of on the front end of this. And that is some of these passages has become so familiar that they might have become trite in your mind. And you might have to lay aside some, some deeply entrenched ideas about what these passages are saying, because we have taken the, the book of Philippians so far out of context for so many things. It's amazing. I took Philippians 1 out of context in order to propose to my wife. Um, uh, lots of you have, have memorized Bible verses in Philippians without even knowing it, because you have something like a, a tag on your bumper sticker or or a, a magnet on your refrigerator, and it says things like, he who began a good work in you will, and I mean, you could probably all com- complete this, this, that he will be faithful to complete it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? We, we can finish these sentences. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory, right? Like we can all finish those sentences. We've all memorized those even without trying. And so we have taken these verses and we have turned them into posters and we've turned them into bumper stickers and we've turned them into magnets. We've turned them into Christian successories instead of them being the life altering truths that God wants to, to, to give to us when they're given to us in context. And when they're given to us in context, we see that, that joy can exist in the deepest pain and the deepest suffering and the deepest sorrow. And so uh, Philippians chapter one begins talking about joy. In Philippians chapter one, it says, Paul and Timothy servants of christ jesus the word servants is is literally slaves paul and timothy chained it's it, they are are uh, use it's the word doulos which is is it's not just any slave it's not just any servant it's the invisible servant, that you don't even look at. You act like they're not there. The the closest thing we have in our culture is panhandlers on the freeway. We come off the exit and we try to not make eye contact and we try not to look at them. We try to act like they're not there. That, when Paul says we are slaves... He says that we are doulos, we are the the invisible slave, the slave you don't even make eye contact with, and 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 he seems to use this description um, to talk to us a little bit about what's going on with his life. Um, from what we can piece together in the in the other uh, New Testament epistles, um, uh, Paul has been put in prison, and and when he was put in prison, um, uh, the 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 people who were um, there in rome the the other uh christians and pastors um they they didn't like Paul's notoriety. They didn't like that everybody knew his name and they didn't know their name. And, and so here's Paul in prison and they should be caring for him and they should be going to visit him and they should be taking his letters into other places. And instead what they do is they, they begin to work against him and they, and they, they see it as like a zero sum game. If Paul wins, we lose. And so they, 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 uh, neglect him. And in, it gets so bad that it, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, it says that Onesiphorus goes looking for Paul and he can't find him. He has to really look hard, apparently to 2 Timothy 1.17, in order just to find Paul and to serve him. And in spite of of all of this, Paul says, we are slaves, not of Rome. We are slaves, not of these other Christians who are are misusing us. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. And, and he, he basically wants us to understand like, I may be forgotten, but I serve one who you will never forget. And so he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints. And, and we, we use the word saint uh, in, you know, like when we talk about, the, like we'll joke with each other and say, um, yeah, I can't believe your wife has stayed with you so long. Uh, she must be a saint. Right. Well, what are we saying? Like, she must be like God. She must be holy. And and that's actually um, the idea of saint being tied to holiness is a good description because the the word saint, both Hebrew and Greek, it's in the same family as the word holy. And and um, and what you get is a sense that he's saying uh, to all those who have the purity and have the privilege of standing in God's presence, he's he's reminding these Christians, who they are. And he's doing what he does pretty much in all of his letters. He is beginning with the indicative, this is who you are, before he gets to the imperative, this is what you should do because of who you are. And so he begins by saying, you are saints, that that is, you have imputed purity, you have um, uh, this this privilege that's been given to you. You have been made sons, and you have been made heirs, and you have access to God, and you can be in his presence. And he sums that all up in a word, like you are saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And so it's, it, he's, he's going to continue to talk about the indicative before he gets to the imperative. But the very first imperative that he gets to in the book is only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, whether I come and see you, or am I absent, I may hear that you are standing in one spirit. You're together in community with one mind and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And basically when he gets to his first command, he's going to give a command that encompasses all the other things that he talks about in the rest of the book. And he says, you need to be gospel people and you need to be in gospel community and you need to be on gospel mission. And and so um, he's reminding them who they are because that determines what it is that they can do and so he says to all the saints in christ jesus who are at philippi with the overseers and deacons grace to you and peace now back then they had a a, a greeting where they would say rejoice and and over time it it just became hi hello hey um and it, it it was it became something that didn't mean anything people would say rejoice and and so he uses the word grace because it sounds so similar to rejoice, um, the word charis. And, and, and all of a sudden, the way he uses it, people go, wait. And, and it's like he's reminding them that you should rejoice in the grace and the peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I thank my God the thank is eucharist the word where we get eucharist like the the remembrance of what it is that christ did that we we take um, uh, the, the lord's supper together uh, and we are remembering that is the eucharist he says i eucharisto i thank my god in all of my remembrance of you and, and you have to really think about uh, what it was that Paul remembered about the church at Philippi the church at Philippi was probably um, planted as one of the most unusual church plants in the history of the world um, so Paul and Silas and Luke were on the second missionary journey and, um, and and they were not heading towards Philippi and Acts 16 records how Paul has a vision and he sees a man from Macedonia and the man from Macedonia says come over here and, and Paul Oh, Completely redirects where he's going. It's like Proverbs 16 says, "The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps." And so Paul had a plan, and he had a goal, and he had it all mapped out. And all of a sudden, he has a dream, and it all changes. And so he goes to to Macedonia, and he goes towards Europe, and and Paul and Silas go to Philippi. And when they go to Philippi, they meet this woman named Lydia, and Lydia becomes a follower of Jesus, and and so they begin a church in her house. And then they meet a slave girl who is a fortune teller and they lead her to Jesus and you go, man, this is great until the, the people who own the slave girl realize that she's not going to bring them any more money because she's not going to be able to do this fortune telling because she doesn't have the, the connection to the demonic anymore. And, and so they have Paul and Silas thrown into jail. Well then what happens? Things rattle and shake and they lead the jailer to, to uh, faith in Christ. And then um, the city leaders ask him to leave. And the church of Philippi grows. You go, man, that's the most unusual church planning thing I've ever like. If if I were to be a church planning assessor and somebody said, Here's my plan. Um, I'm gonna go into a city, I'm gonna get arrested, I'm gonna get kicked out, but I'll have started a church. I would be like, mm, maybe church planning isn't for you, right? But he says. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you and in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And and he begins using a a tool, uh, a chiasm, uh, which is basically, um, it's like you have bookends and then they work together towards the middle. Um, If you were using, like talking about poetry, you might say it goes A, B, C, and then CBA. That is what a chiasm does. And so as he goes through the chiasm, he he basically says, look, I'm thankful for the joy of remembering you. I'm thankful for the joy of interceding for you. I'm thankful for the joy of partnering with you. I'm thankful for the joy of watching you grow. And I'm thankful for the joy of loving you. The way he, he says it um, in the ESV, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers of, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. And And so, so as he works down the chiasm, um, remembering their steeding, partnering, watching them grow, loving, when he gets to love, it's like he's at the center of things. And he says, why do I love you? I love you because you're caring for me in prison. And I love you because you are out defending and, and, confirming the gospel you're proclaiming the gospel i love what what god has done in you i love what god is doing through you and so then he begins to work it kind of the other direction and and he says for god is my witness how i yearn for you with the affection of christ and this is my prayer and and he begins to work it backwards where um it was remembering interceding partnering watching loving now he starts with loving and he says um It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. That is the watching you grow so that you may approve what is excellent. So that's the partnering together and be pure and blameless. Um, and, and that is the, uh, idea of, of, um, being able to intercede before God, uh, until the day of Jesus Christ. And, um, most of the brothers, uh, Let's see if I did I skip a verse. Most of the brothers, having been confident of the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others goodwill. And so he he goes through this chiasm and says, um, like on on the the front end, I want to tell you I'm thankful and i'm i'm remembering at eucharist i'm worshiping through the remembrance um and and on the back end he says um you are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through jesus christ to the praise and the glory of god and so worship on the front end worship on the back end with his love for them being driven by their heart for him their heart for god their heart for the gospel and and then he goes on and he says um uh, I want you to know what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to the rest of uh, that my imprisonment is for christ and and um and you just go hey that's kind of a a funny thing that he says uh, my my imprisonment has been for christ and the the, prison, the all the the prison keepers know that that uh, i'm um, here for the gospel it's just like when he was in Philippi and the the prison keeper there, um, came to know uh, Christ through him. And, and so uh, it says, um, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And so these are these uh, pastors who are are trying to make Paul look like he's losing so that they can look like they're winning, but others do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They want to be known. They want to win. Um, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. They They want to make it so that I feel like I have lost here in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And and basically what Paul says, look, I can have joy in losing because I preach a king who won by losing. And so I don't care. I don't care whether it makes me look like I'm losing or not. Ultimately, the message that I'm taking is that the king won by losing. So if I lose, so what? He'll win. And that's all that really matters. And so um, he, he talks about the gospel being their source, his, the gospel through them being his source of joy. And that, that at the end of the day, what he's saying is, um, the, I'm rejoicing because I know that when it looks like life isn't working, God is working. That, that, that God is in control and God is doing something even when I can't see him. This week uh, I sent you an email update that included um, an update about little Karsten Keynes. He's an infant who um, has sepsis. It it has damaged his kidneys and his his liver Um, and he needs surgery and he's going to have to have the surgery. Once the sepsis is taken care of, they have to get that bacteria under control first. Um, And his little body has swollen up. So he looks like he's a three or four month old instead of a newborn Um, and, and, and for for this family, I'm praying for them. I'm praying, like I've got a little post-it on my on my mirror. Uh, every time I reach for soap, I see the little post-it. It says Karsten Keynes, and I pray for them. And I pray not just for his health and healing, which I do, but I pray for their joy. And this, this has been the thing that has continued to come to my mind um, as, as I have prayed for them. Uh, and I, I've, I've talked to you before about the Heidelberg Catechism, but, but uh, it says, what is my only comfort in life and in death? And this week, each time I've seen that little sticker, I've asked the question, what is my only joy in life and in death? And this is what I'm praying for them. My only joy in life and death is that I am not my own that I've been bought with a price. Um, I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid my sins, and with his precious blood, he set me free and and overcome the power of the devil, and he preserves me in such a way that without the will of the Heavenly Father, not a hair uh, from my head can fall. Um, Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, the Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily, willing, and readily now to live for him. And so I've been praying as as I uh, have thought of him, and I've been praying for his mom, and I've been praying for his grandmother and their family, and just saying, Lord, I pray that their joy in life will be that they are not their own, but bought with a price, that they um, know that Jesus has fully paid for their sins, that Jesus is preserving them, and the Holy Spirit will um, assure them of eternal life and assure them of life with this little boy, no matter what happens in this life, and so I've just been praying for their joy that they're, and and I think as we uh, think about what our joy is, our joy derives in that, right? Our confidence, our our sustainable um, hope and confidence and joy is that God is working even when it seems like life is not working. When you think about the hardships that you're facing. It could be a loss of a job. It could be the loneliness of this isolation. It could be the actual illness, right? Um, um, How do you find joy in this? Do you find joy by remembering God's faithfulness in the past? Do you find joy by embracing this as a new opportunity to pray? Do you find joy by using your hardship as an opportunity to help someone else? Do you find joy by rejoicing in someone else's progress? Do you find joy by demonstrating love instead of selfishness in things that are hard? Do you find joy by proclaiming that God is working even when it seems like life isn't? Do you have the confidence that God is working? We were created for joy. This is what Smeed said, right? We were created for joy, and if we miss it, we miss the reason for our existence. If our joy is honest, it must somehow be congruous with human tragedy, and this is the test of joy's integrity. It must be compatible with pain. Are you looking for joy if you're looking for joy, then the joy the the journey towards joy begins with the confidence that God is working, even when it seems like life is not. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is joy in your presence. Lord, I pray that we will know you and we will know the joy that comes from standing in your presence. Lord, we of all people have so much to celebrate. We have been forgiven. Our debt has been wiped clean. You have invited us into your family. You have invited us into your very presence. You have given us the hope of the future. You have given us an inheritance. You have given us a family here on earth. You have given us a work to do. You have given us the ability to go into all the world and to take the gospel to all nations. And Lord, I just pray that we will find the great satisfaction and joy that comes with knowing you and being with you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that the gospel of Jesus will bring joy. Lord, it is your grace. It is your mercy. It is your compassion that has drawn us to repentance. And so, Lord, I pray that your grace and your mercy and your compassion will spill out of us, that the joy that comes from knowing you will so fill us that it spills over to the people who are around us, and we pass on your joy. Lord, we ask this because we believe it's according to your will, so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am going to stop sharing and let the Rouses share. And uh, Rouses, I think you're off mute. So I'll let you wrap up. All right. We have uh, this is a new song for our congregation. Uh, it's called Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death. As Tim has been talking about our source of joy, um, this song, just the words are so beautiful. And I just encourage you to just sort of let them marinate your heart and um, enjoy and sing along if you feel like you've got it and you want to. But here is Christ, our hope in life and death.